standing on an island that is 30 kilometers offshore and being surrounded by thousands of pelicans. It's this surreal feeling knowing that very few people have been allowed to work on this island, let alone be surrounded by so many pelicans at once. It's such a grounding feeling to be in that environment. Science is awesome. It's fascinating. It sparks curiosity. And it's the reason most of us are alive today. But sometimes it sucks from applying to funding, to spending hours in the lab, to lack of representation in many science fields. On this podcast, we talk about the ins and outs of scientific research and how it impacts our lives. Welcome to Science Sucks. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Science Sucks. We have reached episode 30 and this week we're chatting with Joita Martinez, a PhD student at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. She studied a whole lot of organisms from the North American porcupine to butterflies on islands off the coast of Washington state and to her current research on brown pelicans in Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico. And oh boy, does she have fieldwork stories to share. Juita was nervous to get on the mic, but she's unnatural. Her energy and contagious laugh make this episode an absolute blast. We talk fieldwork mishaps, camera traps, and how you can start exploring the outdoors yourself. So without further ado, welcome to the bird-filled life of pelican biologist, Juita Martinez. So I am currently, I guess what some would call a pelican biologist. I'm a PhD student at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and I'm currently in my second year. But my story goes back a very like long time ago when I was a little itty-bitty girl. And um, I actually have two immigrant parents who were initially not very supportive of my love of the great outdoors and all the animals. They thought I was very weird <laughs> as a kid. I wanted a pet snail at some point, I remember. And um, I just remember always being very fascinated by like how the world works and how organisms interact with them like with each other and their surroundings um so that's when it started probably with the pet snail and then I wanted a pet, like I wanted an ant farm at one point and <laughs> I remember really diving into the biology world because I had the best biology teacher in high school and I'm really sad that I don't remember his name but he really like instilled in the whole class I felt like this love for biology um and I remember after that point that I knew that was what I was gonna focus on what did you love about the biology teacher? I remember him giving us the tools to really understand biological concepts versus just memorizing terms and definitions and getting a grade on a on a paper or test. He really like 
wanted us to understand like why certain things were happening. And if you get this reaction, it's because X, Y, and Z happened. And it changed my view of also like what a good class is, you know? Um, I think a lot of the classes I took, it was just flashcards and memorizing and like getting the A that everyone says you should get, which I don't particularly believe in that. Yeah, a lot of people didn't like biology in class Mm -hmm. in school because of the memorizing. And then then when you get a teacher that actually makes it click for you, then you can dive in. I completely agree. You loved your biology teacher and you wanted to go into biology. Did you always want to study pelicans or how did you come upon that? So I... That's a really great question because I actually <laughs> took the windiest road possible to get to where I am today. I um, originally wanted to study frogs as an undergrad. I was like, I'm going to study frogs. There's a, the chytrid fungus. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, um, but it's decimating populations um, of amphibians worldwide. And that just fascinated me that something could take out such a large taxa group. The chytrid fungus, as Juita said, is a deadly killer of amphibians around the world. According to a study published earlier this year, the chytrid fungus has played a role in the decline of 501 amphibian species in the past 50 years. Of these species, 90 went extinct. The fungus causes a disease that damages the skin of frogs, toads, and other amphibians, throwing off their balance of water and salt, and eventually causing heart failure. If you Google the chytrid fungus, that's C h-y-t-r-i-d you see pictures of dead frogs floating upside down in water yikes i can see why juita was like yeah this is so important to study so here's where her curiosity about frogs took her next i kind of want to say my road has been sprinkled with luck um but I happened to be at the right places at the right times where opportunities were available and I was ready to take them. And I remember my mentor um, as an undergrad was like, you need to be ready to take opportunities as they come. Um, and the first one was I got an NSF REU, which is research experience for undergraduates. And if there's any undergraduates listening to this, I highly recommend them applying. Applications actually open in the next month or so. Um, And they actually flew me to Charleston, South Carolina, and housed me for three months as I did a research project with NOAA. And I was looking at antimicrobial resistance in grass shrimp, which is a far cry from pelicans, I know. That is wild because I'm always like, oh, I want to travel. I want to do field work. But how? And this is exactly how. Right. Like it's a a lot of um, internships I noticed as an undergrad don't pay you. And the NSFRU does, which is amazing. And it's a pretty good stipend um, if I say so myself. I was really happy Mm -hmm. with the stipend that I got. That was my first real break into the world of science. NOAA, or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, are like the NASA of the oceans. They basically keep the public informed on Earth's changing environment, from daily weather forecasts, severe storm warnings, and climate monitoring. NOAA funds scientists to do the kind of biology and restoration work that Juita was working on. So after working with NOAA, what did she do next? From then, I actually ended up working 
with NSF again for a longer term research project. And it was with the North American porcupine. They used to be really abundant in Northern California, but their population is basically gone for most of their range. And there wasn't anyone studying that particular species at the time that I was an undergrad in like 2013. And so this professor wanted to start a pilot study. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I would love to know why this population isn't here anymore. (laughs) So we deployed a bunch of camera traps to see if we could just get a basic idea of where they were, if they were even there. And we actually didn't find any in the city of Arcata and Eureka, um, California, but we did find through actually citizen science that they, they were definitely around a little further north in Crescent City, California. And which was really cool because nobody really knew unless you lived there and you saw them, no one else knew that they were in that area. After the two years of working with camera trapping and porcupines, I ended up working with the North North Northern Red-Legged Frog um, in the Pacific Northwest, which I've now like reached my dream job and all this stuff. But I actually knew I didn't want to live where I went to school as an undergrad, which is Humboldt State University. And mm. um I actually ended up in Northern Washington working on butterflies and island restoration. I worked in San Juan Island National Historical Park and the island had received some human restorations, which usually involves um, planting different vegetations that were native, but also that helped the population of endangered or a species of concern um, of butterflies up there, which is known as the island marbled butterfly. And that kind of opened the doors. Well, I didn't know back then, but I know now it makes sense (laughs) Um, with me working with organisms that need habitats, which are being degraded for a multitude of reasons. But humans are stepping in to try to protect and restore these habitats to a previous state. The population of butterflies was estimated to be about 200 individuals, which for an insect is pretty tiny. (laughs) And that's a very good number to have. So when I was working with the island marble butterfly, I was actually captive rearing them. So I would go out into the field and find eggs. And these eggs were tiny um they were found on three specific plants like the butterflies would only lay their eggs on these three plants thank god i didn't have to look through every plant on the island Um, and that's that's pretty common for butterflies like i think monarch butterflies only like milkweed so that you can only find them there totally like they have specific food resources that their um um their caterpillar larvae have to time perfectly with the food that they need and we would go out into the field collect these eggs bring them to a temperature controlled room and basically raise caterpillars (laughs) um 
And the odd thing that really led to the decline of the species is they're actually only alive for two weeks as butterflies. Wow. And they, um, they're in their cocoons for most of the year and they emerge in the summer for two weeks. So they have mm-hmm. to find a mate, find some food and live long enough to lay their egg. So wow. the two time span isn't a lot. Um, so these butterflies had everything against them at this point. Wow. And you were helping to restore them. Yeah, I was also working on island restoration projects where we were growing native plant species to be replanted across the island. And some of these species were the species that the butterflies needed to lay their eggs on. Joita has studied a broad range of organisms all across the United States. Next, we'll fly right into discussing her current research on brown pelicans in Louisiana. You'll fall in love with her description of these feathery friends. Brown pelicans, um, they're actually divers, so they'll dive from the air and catch fish that way. So they're plunge divers. Um, they actually can dive from like 30 feet up in the air and they have these air sacs in their chest area, which will take the force of that impact as they plunge into the ocean to catch their fish. And I know this might be cheesy, but since I am permitted to handle these pelicans, they're actually really like soft and squishy. Seriously, find someone who talks about you the way Juita talks about brown pelicans. Let's dive deeper into her research on brown pelican restoration. The baseline to knowing whether or not like your restoration project has succeeded is to have a high biodiversity of organisms is usually ideal and what everyone wants because you're spending a lot of time and money into restoring a space, but you want to restore that space for the largest amount of organisms that would benefit. Um, So for example, in Louisiana, for those that don't live here or haven't heard, we are experiencing some of the fastest rates of land loss in the country. Louisiana has lost the land the size of Delaware in the last um, few decades, which is pretty large. Um, so in order to mitigate those losses, the state has put in like millions of dollars to restore certain aspects of the coastline more for like human infrastructure and, um, to protect the people that live here. Um, and the backup focus are the organisms such as pelicans who rely on these coastal barrier islands. The barrier islands act as like our first line of defense out here against storm surges and um, things like hurricane. The thought is that the waves would hit the barrier islands first and the barrier islands would disperse that energy before it all just hits the coastline. Wow. Um, So... Unfortunately, because the restoration projects are not necessarily 100% for pelicans, um, nobody really goes back to check to see if these restoration projects have a positive, negative, maybe it's just there's no effect at all on pelican populations. Um, What's really 
what really struck me and made me want to join this project is Louisiana actually lost its population of brown pelicans by 1963 due to DDT. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, Louisiana had no brown pelicans at that point. So their eggs were not hatching. Um, There was no nest success. Breeding um, across the state was at zero. Ah yes, DDT. It's a chemical compound that was initially developed as an insecticide and then became infamous for its devastating environmental impacts. I learned about it at school as a lesson in food chains. Here's a rundown of how it works. While small amounts of DDT are okay, it bioaccumulates up a food chain. Basically, DDT was sprayed everywhere and it ran off into lakes, so it would end up in plankton at, say, 0.04% parts per million. Small fish eat the plankton and get 0.5 parts per million. Then large fish eat enough small fish for it to build up to 2 parts per million. And then birds eat enough fish to get 25 parts per million. This higher and higher concentration up the food chain caused the thinning of bird eggshells, which killed their embryos and caused population declines. While many of its negative impacts were known from the start, public outcry grew after Rachel Carson's 1962 book Silent Spring was published. What followed were restoration projects launched to help populations recover from DDT, including the brown pelicans. What happened was in 19, like 1970s-ish, they brought over brown pelican chicks from Florida to try to get them to colonize in Louisiana. So the pelicans we have now actually stem from a Florida population. So now we have brown pelicans here, but they're losing their habitat. So instead of having DDT, now they're losing the space needed to raise their young. We actually lost one of our main pelican nesting islands this past year due to Hurricane Barry. This particular island didn't receive any restoration work on it. So we don't really know what happens when these pelicans who return to the islands that they were born on lose those islands. Where do they go? Do they go to a nearby island? Do they leave the population altogether? Preliminary um, data suggests that when the island that they were born on is lost, they leave the population altogether and move to a different state such as Mississippi or Texas, which wow. is, is huge. It's sad. It's to know that we lose an entire population when that happens. But the other side is prioritizing which restoration project to focus on versus start a new one. Yeah. Oh, that, that must be challenging because it's easier for you to say, oh, we should save this island and this island and this coast and that coast. Um, but when someone at a higher level is allocating funds, they, uh, you know, maybe they're informed, maybe they're not, but they're making decisions that can, um, that can't often help everything. Right. And it's, there's a lot of steps. There's a lot of people. Um, is it better to restore an island that already had restoration previously? Because it might cost less, right? It's maintenance versus mm-hmm. just starting a whole new restoration project on an island that has never been restored before. Wow. That's hard. And we need, obviously, we need policymakers who are educated about science and prioritize science for that to happen. Right. Like, 
they plant all these different types of vegetation, but the vegetation may not be beneficial to the majority of organisms that utilize the space. So I'm hoping with my research is that I can provide this information to the managers out there in hopes that not only we restore these islands for human safety and protection of our coastline, but also at the same time benefit the wildlife that utilize these habitats the most. A huge part of my current research is using camera traps to follow um, nests throughout their breeding season, which usually lasts between February and August. And these camera traps give us a day-to-day look into their lives. So I follow, each camera can follow anywhere between um, one to about 10 nests. And I can see how many chicks are born, how many chicks survive. And I use this information to model um, nest success. And basically what nest success mean is how many chicks make it to the point when they fledge and we count fledging as they are teenagers they have their feathers have grown in and they're ready to leave the nest basically and every chick that is makes it to that age that they're ready to leave the nest we count that as a success and um, this gives us an idea of how well the population is doing because if they're able to make it to this older stage that means they're getting enough food resources. That means their nest um, was able to survive the entire time that they needed the nest for. We see um, they they prefer vegetation that is taller. And here in Louisiana, that vegetation tends to be black mangrove. And if they are if black mangrove is available, that means their nest are off the ground and the risk of flooding is reduced. So these islands are maybe a foot above sea level. So any kind of storm surge or hurricane can really decimate a population. So these cameras are motion activated. So they'll take a single photo every 30 seconds as long as there's movement. So I have about 5 million photos right now across <laughs> two years, which it is a lot. It is as much as it sounds like it is. Um, and I record anything from the habitat in which the nest is on and the, as well as the surrounding habitat, because both of those can play a role in um, with whether or not the chick survives. Like if the surrounding habitat is really tall, that can potentially give the chicks shade because it gets really hot out there, gets up to like 116 degrees Fahrenheit. And um, everything from like hiding from predators, which we have coyotes and raccoons and nutria on some of these islands, um, as well as I can see if like a nest is flooded um, so I record as much data as possible that these cameras mm-hmm. provide. Wow, that's really cool. I'm obsessed with camera traps. Like once I realized that, like obviously, if you were going out there taking pictures of your like yourself with a camera, you wouldn't be able to catch these images because the birds would like avoid you. But camera traps, like the scent of humans, can go away after a while, and it's amazing what they can capture. Right. I love the non-invasive aspect of them. Like I don't need to be in the colony every single day 
recording data and I can just leave. My cameras last about two to three weeks. So they're not getting this constant human disturbance, which can also lead to a lower um, nest success because of abandonment. Oh, wow. Because they're like, I'm going to avoid this human and then walk away. Yeah. Like they, we can, as humans, these pelicans can definitely perceive us as a predator. Mm-hmm. So they're going to, they're going to um, outweigh the risk of, oh, should I stick around if this predator is here all the time versus if this predator isn't here? Camera traps are a very useful tool and I'm glad that I'm allowed to use them out there because I don't see a better way of being able to track them and you get this in-depth look into their lives and you get to every once in a while you'll just see like this hilarious photo of them um somebody commented on one of my pelican photos that I put up as resting beak face (laughs) and I thought it was hilarious that's so cute (laughs) you get to see like parents and their young just like the young like playing or something that's really cute right and I can actually see every time that the young is being fed which gives us an idea of oh if we see this nest being these chicks being fed only four times a day versus 10 times a day is that going to affect the success in some way okay so Juita is basically flipping through the most thorough bird family photo album of all time. I wanted to know what misconceptions she has to debunk about pelicans. Not to be a typical clickbait title, but you will not believe the answer she gives us. So actually, I get this all the time, is that pelicans are competing with um, the fisheries. So like the fishing companies out there for fish, like they're eating all of our fish. (laughs) So us as humans can't have any and that is so not true. They are they are known to just eat the amount that they need. They won't go over because they're not trying to expend extra energy that isn't needed. That's so funny. Like I'm just imagining like a giant fishing boat with like a giant net and a pelican's just like trying to get a fish. Like it's not um, they don't have industrial fishing operations. <laughs> exactly. And I try really hard to like explain that to people who <laughs> accuse me for trying to save pelicans, that they're ruining <laughs> the fishing industry. I'm like, I assure you they are not. <laughs> That's so funny. I never would have thought of that. <laughs> maybe especially in Louisiana, maybe there's a well, like people are a fan of fish like because there's fisheries around it. Right, but um, also like there is this potential fish population decline right from our overfishing mm-hmm. of the ocean so mm-hmm. it's not really the pelicans that are overfishing the ocean see i would never have thought the pelicans are being blamed for our human industrial fishing operations i feel like there's a potential for a political cartoon in there somewhere next i asked her what are some ways that you and i can get involved in the outdoors and fieldwork projects so if you're trying to get into birding um, I feel like there's always bird watching groups out there, um, as well as I don't know why I'm blanking. Oh, sorry. Um, if you're an undergrad or someone interested in volunteering, um, I know myself. I am always happy to take volunteers out with me, especially to like help out because the more hands 
tends to make the work go faster and it's lighter. Um, so graduate students are usually always looking for volunteers and like nonprofits such as Audubon and um, things like that. They usually have like volunteer opportunities um, for anybody that could come and join. Um, I worked for Audubon in San Francisco and we would actually take people out um, onto three different islands to help us plant native vegetation on these islands to help um, to help prevent the erosion of the islands because the roots really hold the sediment in place. So there are quite a few opportunities out there. And what is your favorite part of your job, would you say? My favorite part of this research project that I'm doing right now is standing on an island that is 30 kilometers offshore and being surrounded by thousands of pelicans. It's this surreal feeling knowing that very few people have been allowed to work on this island, let alone be surrounded by so many pelicans at once. It's such a grounding feeling to be in that environment like it's very I feel very privileged to even get the opportunity to work with such an amazing species like never in a million years would I like have been able to say oh yeah I'm gonna do that one day and like actually get to do it it's super cool and what are some of the challenges of your job what is difficult (laughs) all the field work mishaps I can go on for (laughs) days about how many things can go wrong no matter how like perfect we think we've planned a field day Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico sometimes have other plans for us um a funny one that I like to tell that I think someone might get mad at me for saying is we were driving our boat out to an island and all of a sudden the engine just stops which is never a good sound. Like we were going 60 kilometers an hour or something and um, it just stops. The boat just stops in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, which you don't have really good cell service in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, (laughs) or Probably not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And we like sat there trying to figure out like what went wrong. Like the people who maintain these boats are amazing and they're really on top of it because you never want to be stuck out in the middle of the ocean and I had to call the water sheriff which is also never a good sign <laughs> they have to come out to the coast and then launch their boat and come get you um an hour and 45 minutes in we're still waiting for the water sheriff because it does take a really long time um and I just happened to realize that we had pulled the kill switch off and the kill switch on a boat you're supposed to put it around your wrist so in the event that you are flinged off the boat as the driver the engine automatically cuts off um and it was accidentally pulled off by the steering wheel so there was actually nothing wrong with the boat it was just us no one had (laughs) oh like you turn you basically pulled the emergency stop thing that is what (laughs) happened and we sat there for two hours when we could have been doing work just floating in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> just just waiting. Yeah. Um, so things like that. <laughs> and you're like, wow. 
Good job, crew. <laughs> I mean, it happens. It happens. Science is messy. <laughs> it is. It is so messy. Um, and That's things so- like running into locals that blame pelicans for over like taking too much fish um, can be really challenging because you want to be respectful because they also need to make a livelihood. So it's trying to get a good middle ground of explaining like the side of the pelican. I feel like they can't speak to us. So like we have to be their advocates. That sounds like you've had a lot of adventures and even though it's hard, it's like memories to last you a lifetime. You definitely have cool stories to tell. Right. And you learn from each one. We're like, well, next time the boat shuts off, we're going to check the kill switch first. (laughs) (laughs) I feel very lucky to be where I am today. Lucky, but also you, like you said, you were ready to take those opportunities and they came. Right. That's probably like the biggest advice I could give anybody. I feel like it's very um, representative of every field, like these opportunities will pop up and it depends if you are ready to accept them if you want to accept them you know just really yeah. going for it because you never know where you might end up <laughs> yeah like studying pelicans using cameras by looking at their nests you did not initially think you were going to get there oh, no definitely not <laughs> it was so cool and you said advice for young scientists is like be prepared um, for those opportunities do you have any other advice you want to give to the young people who maybe want to do something like you? I would say get as much experience as you possibly can. There are definitely internships and job opportunities out there, especially like during those summer months when you're not taking classes um, that will pay you. Um, I'm a very big advocate for paying somebody for the work that they've done. So I would say look around for that. Um, the Texas A&M Wildlife Job Board, if you're interested in any wildlife jobs, is my favorite. And another piece of advice, I would say don't get bogged down on that letter on a piece of paper. I'm talking about grades. It, it doesn't <laughs> define you. It doesn't mean like you are unqualified if you get a bad grade every once in a while. Um, you are more than just a letter on a piece of paper. I think a lot of people needed to hear that. (laughs) I think I needed to hear that as an undergrad, which is why I feel like that's such an important point to make. Yeah, I started to realize that those opportunities you have, like the internships, any co-ops or volunteering is so much more powerful than like trying to see if you can get a 60, 70, 80, 90 grade right definitely like that's what shows you like getting out there and doing the types of work shows you what you want to do with your life and what you don't want to do um as much as I find like lab work to be very fun and important I by doing lab work I realize I would rather be outside more than doing lab work so mm-hmm. getting those experience can also just tell you and show you what you really want to do and follow your gut. Y'all, I have some advice for you. If you're feeling down, start your own podcast and have your guests give you helpful life advice every episode because that's what Joita did. She tells us to be prepared for the opportunities that come to us, to try new experiences that will guide our interests, and to follow our gut. That is definitely advice that I needed to hear. 
So to wrap it all up, here's where you can find Juita on social media. I am most active on Twitter at Juita Martinez. So you can follow me on there and watch my next field season, which is coming up in a few months from now with all the cute baby talent and videos. <laughs> And that's it for today's episode. Chuita's laugh is contagious. I am feeling the brown pelican love. Best of luck on your upcoming field season, and thank you for coming on the pod. I've linked all the resources Juita mentioned in the show notes so you can follow her path if that's something you're interested in. Here on Science X Pod, we want to help each other out, so check out those resources. To keep the conversation going, follow the podcast at ScienceXPod on Twitter. We have surpassed 500 followers, so that is very exciting. You can join the squad at ScienceXPod and drop us a review on iTunes so other folks can find the show. And remember, don't blame pelicans for declining fish populations. That's our fault as humans. And have an amazing week.